We come to that time in our worship service, the very pinnacle of a worship service, where we have the enormous privilege to humble ourselves before God's Word. And I would invite you to open the infallible record this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And this morning I will be reading from verses 1 through 16. Matthew 26, verse 1 through 16, as we look at previews of redemption and rejection. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 26. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany... At the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Then... One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. This morning we approach the amazing conclusion of Matthew's Gospel As Jesus approaches the cross over the past several years, as we have as we have gone through Matthew verse by verse, we have journeyed with him from his birth down through his ministry and in Judea and in Galilee. We've been with him when he called the disciples and preached the message of repentance. We've heard his sermon on the mount. We've seen the authority of the king. We've seen him exercise his supernatural power over sin and over Satan and even over death, over nature. We have been with him when the Jewish leaders have rejected him. We've heard his parables of the kingdom. We've seen him confront hypocrites. We've seen him commission the 70 to go out two by two. And then we have been with him 
during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, a day that we celebrate in our culture today, commonly known as Palm Sunday. And right after that entry, he cursed the fig tree, having leaves but no figs, symbolizing Israel pretense of spirituality yet without any fruit. We've heard his parables of impending judgment, his promise to destroy the temple. And then we've heard his greatest prophetic discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, describing his second coming. And now it is Wednesday in the Passion Week, as it's commonly called. Just a couple days before his crucifixion. And he has entered Jerusalem and the people have said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And yet these same people will cry out for him to be crucified in just a couple days. Now, you will remember that earlier in that day on Wednesday, and by the way, you might think of this this Wednesday, even though this wouldn't necessarily be the exact day, but you will get the idea of it. Earlier on that Wednesday morning, he had taught the multitudes in the temple. Remember, the Jewish leaders were calloused with their hypocrisy and the Lord Jesus berated them. And then he left the temple. He went down through the Cadron Valley and went up to the Mount of Olives. And there he privately answered the questions that were posed to him by the twelve regarding the nature and duration of Israel's desolation of which he had just pronounced. And he gave that detailed description of the time of tribulation, Holocaust and of his glorious second coming. And now suddenly what happens here is Jesus jars all of us back into reality, especially his disciples. He brings them back to the here and now. As he speaks about his imminent death. In verse two, he says, you know, that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Now, I wish to draw your attention this morning to four remarkable pictures found in these 16 verses. Scenes that I believe provide a mere sample of what is about to happen on Thursday and Friday of that week. This is why I've entitled my message to you this morning, Previews of Redemption and Rejection. This morning we will learn, first of all, of the sacred Passover. Secondly, the satanic plot. Thirdly, the selfless sacrifice. And fourthly, the selfish betrayal. And in these scenes, dear friends, we will see afresh the relentless struggle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. And it is my prayer that we will marvel anew at the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and also shake our heads in dismay at those who reject him. Now, first of all, I want to draw your attention to the sacred Passover. Again, in verse two, he reminds them that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Friends, this statement is so filled with with staggering truths that all of the libraries in the world would not be able to contain its implications. 
But you must know, I believe, the context to really appreciate what Jesus is saying and what is about to happen as he becomes our Passover. So journey with me for a few minutes back in time. The original Passover would have been 1445 B.C. in the land of Egypt. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt since 1525. And according to God's promise to Abraham, Abraham's uh, seed was indeed fruitful and he did multiply. And now his seed had grown from a family to, frankly, a nation. And there were about two million Jews there in Egypt. Now, naturally, because of this, Israel had become a threat to their national security. It was estimated at that time that there were about 603 thousand males that were 20 years of age or a little bit older, perfect for military service. So you can imagine the threat. And so therefore, to curb the population explosion, the Hebrew midwives had been ordered to murder the male infants and just throw them in the river. And of course, all pagan societies, even the one in which we live today, have absolutely no regard for innocent life. And so the Egyptian bondage was severe in that day. The taskmasters that were set over the Hebrew people were vicious and cruel, requiring them to do unimaginable tasks. There was forced labor that killed many people, and it also made many of them strong. But God had finally heard the cry of his people And he, of course, will always be faithful to his covenant. And so he set his heart to deliver them. Now, you will recall that one of the male children that should have been killed but was not killed was a young child by the name of Moses. And God later called Moses to lead his people out of bondage. And in Exodus chapter 12, we read of a day of redemption that was about to come. A redemption that would center around a lamb. An amazing thought. An innocent lamb. And so, as we read the text, we read of how God commanded Moses to tell the people that they were to take a lamb, one lamb per household. And in verse 5 of Exodus 12, it says that your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. They were also told to keep that lamb for four days and then to kill it at twilight, which would have been at three o'clock. Moreover, in verse seven of Exodus 12, he says they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And later in verse 11, he describes how that the people were to eat it with their loins girded. In other words, they were to be ready to move very quickly. Their sandals were to be on their feet. They were to have their staves in their hand. It says in the text, eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast. 
and against all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, friends, again, if you can imagine the scene. Imagine a Hebrew family enslaved there in Egypt. Imagine the beleaguered and yet excited Israelites who now take a lamb into their home. And they inspect that lamb for four days as they were commanded. They look for any imperfections. They want to make sure that there's nothing about that lamb that was in any way wrong. And of course, they fall in love with its innocence. They fall in love with its gentleness. And for four days, they would listen to its bleating as if it were trying to express its case of innocence before some bar of justice. Picture a Hebrew family. After four days, a weather-beaten husband and father might have said something like this, Wife, prepare a fire for cooking. And daughter, bring me that basin over there. And you, my child, bring me that batch of hyssop over in the corner. And son, go get the unblemished lamb that continues to bleat. But be careful. Don't break a bone. Bring it to me. Now, family, gather around me here. And then the father unsheaths his knife. And in the swiftness of that moment, he reaches down and he slits the throat of the lamb. And he takes that basin and he pours the blood into that basin. Suddenly the bleeding stops. And all that can be heard are the sniffles of the family. The family now weeps in silence as they watch their father take the hyssop and dip into the basin and then walk over to the doorpost on the outside and sprinkle the blood on the top of the doorpost, on the lintel, on the sides. And then finally, I can imagine a child that can't stand it anymore saying with a quivering voice, Father, what are you doing? What is this all about? And with tears running down his face, I can imagine a father looking at his family and smiling and saying, Family, the Lord our God has heard our cry. And this very night, the Lord our God will deliver us from the bondage of the Egyptians. I can imagine him looking at his wife and saying, Wife, after today, no longer will you have to slave and worry about being beaten and being raped. And daughter, no longer will you have to worry about the lash upon your back and about serving the wicked Egyptians and about being molested by them. And son, no longer will you feel 
the lash on your back because the Lord our God has heard our cry and He is coming to save us. For He is a saving God and a redeeming God and He is the Lord of hosts. I can imagine that father saying to the family, indeed, the angel of death will pass over all who have the blood of the Lamb sprinkled upon their door. Because our God is a saving God. Now hurry. Gather your stuff together. Wife, begin cooking the lamb. Make sure your loins are girded. Make sure your sandals are on your feet. Keep your staff in your hand. And a little bit we must eat. Because the Lord will come this night. And friends, can't you see those calloused hands of, of that father later when they sat down to eat, separating the flesh from the bones of that lamb, being careful not to break one. And then with eager anticipation, they begin to eat the meat and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. And then we know, according to the word of God, at midnight, the carnage began. I could imagine that they would begin to hear the screams, the shrieks coming from the homes of the Egyptians. Blood-curdling screams as they watched in horror the death of their firstborn, even the death of their livestock. Shrieks of anguish that must have been deafening. And yet, in the camp of the Hebrews, it was perfectly quiet. In fact, the text tells us that God even silenced the dogs from barking. Why? Because the tranquility of redemption was their security. And the Egyptians knew very quickly that the God of Israel had unsheathed his sword against them. Little did they know that the blood of the Lamb would not protect them because they had not sprinkled it upon their door. For as the Word of God says, there is no forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. Now, dear friends, only a fool could miss the parallels here. Jesus, of course, was the unblemished Lamb. The Passover lamb. John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus approached them. Friends, it was Jesus who was scrutinized for any imperfections when he was on that temple mount. For four days he was scrutinized for any imperfections before his death. Examined by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And all of the people, as he dealt with their attempts to challenge his authority, and as they mocked his deity and his purity, and with divine omniscience, he exposed their hypocrisy. And with divine eloquence, he presented to them the truth with perfect clarity. In fact, the Word of God tells us that they were so filled with awe, they said that never have we heard anybody speak with such clarity, with such authority, with such wisdom. And finally, you will recall that even Pilate shook his head and washed his hands and said, I find no fault in him. 
And like the Lamb of Egypt, the Lamb of God bleeded his innocence and true identity for four days prior to his sacrificial execution. When he spoke of his deity, when he spoke of his love and his mercy and his grace and called people to repentance and warned them of judgment to come. Indeed, Jesus was the spotless lamb, sacrificed in the prime of his life. The sacrificial death being that of crucifixion, which, by the way, was the only punishment that would allow the shedding of blood without the breaking of a bone. Crucifixion being a lingering torture, satisfying the symbol of the roasting of the lamb. A sacrifice that fully satisfied the justice of God. Something, dear friends, that you and I could never do were we to suffer the roasting of a thousand hells. Beloved, this was the lamb that was pictured in the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve tried to cover their sins with the fig leaves of their own making. But only God could provide a fitting sacrifice, a substitute, and, in, and therefore innocent blood had to be spilt. This was also pictured in the sacrifice of, of Abel versus Cain. Remember, Cain's bloodless and self-righteous sacrifice. It was pictured and foreshadowed in the ark of Noah that saved Noah's family. Of course, it was pictured in the millions of sacrifices with, within the Levitical system all through the Old Testament, it was even pictured in Boaz, remember Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And what a precious thought, dear friends. This lamb was not just a lamb, but he was our lamb. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is our Passover sacrifice. He is the deliverer who saves sinners from the bondage of sin. All those who have been sprinkled with His blood by faith, placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning work. Now, with that background, we go back to the text where Jesus reminds the disciples of His imminent death. In verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. You see, again, here we see the preview of the most staggering event in all of history, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this, of course, being part of God's glorious plan of redemption, a plan that was set into motion in eternity past by a sovereign God who has ordained all things for his glory. In fact, the Lord Jesus had predicted this some three times earlier. So don't pay any attention to these people that want, to, want us to believe that somehow Jesus was as surprised as anybody with his crucifixion and that it just kind of, he got caught up in the political chaos of the time and ended up getting killed. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, later at the Last Supper, he said to his disciples in Luke 22, 22, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. And later, at Pentecost, Peter clearly states that Jesus was, according to Acts 2.23, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Very clear. And Peter later spoke in 1 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. He spoke of the precious lamb 
as the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but who has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So, dear friends, here we see a preview of the ultimate sacred Passover. But the Redeemer has an arch rival, right? He has an arch rival, the father of lies, the great deceiver, the one who is always commanding evil fiends to do his biddings. And this leads us to the second category of this section of Scripture as we look at the satanic plot. Notice verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now, first of all, I find it fascinating in our culture. The public today, especially in the United States, seems to have a, a penchant for conspiracy theories. Everybody loves a good conspiracy theories, and they become very gullible to much of the garbage that's out there. For example, the Da Vinci Codes, which is nothing more than historical revisionism, a ridiculous mix of, of fact and fiction attacking the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, let me just say as an aside, don't waste your time reading that. Um, you know, the Word of God tells us to flee from the very appearance of evil. You don't, you don't study it. You don't get involved with it. Just ignore this stuff. Only a fool would knowingly drink poison to be able to grasp its effects. But we see this all the time, even in the church. People love a good conspiracy theory. But folks, if you want a true conspiracy theory, all you have to do is look at the Word of God. There's conspiracy theories all through it. As you see what Satan is trying to do here, the spotless lamb of God has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet the religious elite are trying to kill him. Amazing story. Look at the characters here. We've got, first of all, the, the, the chief priests who were basically the wealthy aristocracy of apostate Israel, their religious system. And then you've got elders who were the the wealthy kind of entrepreneurial and, and highly influential laity that were a part of the religious system. And, of course, Caiaphas being the chief priest. And he was typical of most religious and political uh, leaders being scoundrels, driven by power, driven by greed. And, of course, he was afraid of Jesus and he hated Jesus, just like Herod, the king, because as we would put it in our vernacular today, Jesus really threatened their political base, you see. Especially since Jesus disrupted uh, the little temple cartel that was being run there. All, remember the money changers and, and the animal salesmen that, that got run out by Jesus. And so Jesus was, was really an offensive character to these people. And as you think about it, like most politicians and religious charlatans, his personal ambitions utterly eclipsed his public persona where he would pretend to somehow be concerned about the needs of the people and the glory of God. But in fact, he was really the poster boy of apostate Israel. And I find it intriguing how Satan is so clever at knowing exactly where to position 
his secret agents to somehow accomplish his diabolical schemes. Now, since Jerusalem was filled with Passover worshipers from all over Israel, and by the way, we have reason to believe that there would have been about two million people there, um, many of which, by the way, were, were sympathetic to Jesus. Now, because of this, this was not a good time to seize Jesus. That could really cause an uprising. But, of course, nothing can interfere with the divine timetable. So Jesus will make his way now to the cross on sovereign time, not Satan's time. So in this text, we see, again, a preview of Satan's plot that would thicken as the days progress and even as time progresses. So we've seen a preview of the sacred Passover and and Satan's plot, but notice thirdly, the selfless sacrifice. And here we have a stunning contrast to the selfishness of of Caiaphas and certainly the wickedness of, of, of Satan's generals that worked for him in that time. In verses 6 through 13, we really have a captivating scene here. Let me explain this to you. Matthew is actually taking us us back here to an earlier event when Jesus came into the eastern region of Jerusalem to the little burgs of, of Bethany and Bethpage. And according to John's gospel, we know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus Lazarus with Lazarus was there and and Martha was really the hostess, as you can imagine. She was serving the meal and Simon the leper was no doubt uh, one of the, the lepers that Jesus had healed. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in this particular place. He would be away from all of the people and obviously a friend of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus and and, you know, a brother in Christ and so on. So now all of them are coming together here in this very touching scene just days before Jesus goes to the cross. Notice verses 6 and 7. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. Now, we know, according to John's gospel, that the woman was Mary. We also know, according to Mark's gospel, that this costly perfume was worth over 300 denarii, which would have been a year's wage for a common laborer. And according to John 12 and verse 3, we we understand that the perfume consisted of of one pound of, of pure nard, which was the same costly perfume that she had used to anoint the feet of her Savior. And according to Mark's gospel in Mark 14, we read that she even broke this this very expensive alabaster vial. Obviously here, she was utterly indifferent to cost, to personal sacrifice. You see, it's interesting. There's no hidden agenda here with Mary. Uh, She's not trying to impress Jesus. She's not trying to somehow manipulate him so that the Lord would grant her some some noble place of prominence in the kingdom that was about to happen because she understood, even in ways that the disciples didn't, that Jesus was about to die. She understood the Passover lamb. So she was motivated, dear friends, by one thing, worship. 
Obviously, Mary understood her Lord Lord was going to die. She knew that He was the Lamb that would soon be slain. And dear friends, as I think about this, you know, when, when we fully grasp the, the gravity of the cross, all we have and all we are suddenly pale into utter insignificance. You see, true worship knows nothing about personal ambition. True worship cares nothing about, well, how much time will this require or, 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 or how much will this cost me? True worship cares nothing about personal pleasure. It cares nothing about the accolades of man or or, or praise. It cares nothing about self-aggrandizement. How much am I going to get? It knows nothing of that. Because, dear friends, true worship is rooted in self-denial, not in self-fulfillment. And obviously Mary understood this. And the Spirit of God places this in this text so that we can see the contrast and grasp the profound realities of a true worshiper. Because true worship is the utter abandonment of self and the utter adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the contrast here with the self-centered disciples. Don't you love these guys? I'm sure this is probably where I would have been. Verses 8 and 9, the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste for the perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, folks, we're not told what their real motivation was. I mean, maybe they were truly concerned for the poor, the needs of the poor. Now, I I know that wasn't the case with Judas because Judas was nothing more than a crook. I mean, he was a thief. That's all he was. And I'm sure he was upset about the whole deal because he's thinking, oh, don't pour that out. I could have sold that and pocketed all that money. I'm sure that was his motivation. Now, 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 maybe the disciples were dealing with the one-upmanship type of thing that very often occurs in the body of Christ. After all, they're still kind of thinking that maybe King Jesus is going to whoop Rome and set up his kingdom, and maybe they're going to have a place here. And, and now Mary's doing this and getting all of the attention, and maybe she's going to find the favor that we wish we could have. I, I don't know. But whatever their motivation, it was misguided and the Lord rebuked them. Verses 10 through 13, Jesus was aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me for the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. And folks, how true. Here we are some 2,000 years later, and we're still humbled by this woman's act of selfless sacrifice, of selfless worship. And beloved, we need to learn from this, don't we? Now, now, Now think about this for a moment. You know, God is never impressed with the value of our gift. What he's impressed with is the sacrifice of our heart. You see, the Lord rewards the impulse of our heart, not the obligation of our mind. He looks at us and, and, and he, 
he sees whether or not we're giving what and, and whatever we're doing, whether it's financially or through service or whatever it might be. Are, are you giving out of desire or out of duty? Are you giving it because you love me and love me alone? Or are you giving it so other people will notice and kind of give you a hand? I think of the widow's might. The widow's might was a far greater gift than the millionaire's million, right? You understand that? You see, it's the sacrifice of the heart that matters, not the size of the gift. Now, I ask you to examine your heart for just a moment here. How often do we break the alabaster vial and anoint the Savior's head and even his feet with sacrificial love and sacrificial service? And literally say, I don't care what this costs me. I, I, I don't care what others say. There's nothing more important in my life right now than doing this for my Lord. Even if I do it in utter obscurity. Can you imagine a church filled with Marys? There would never be any need to... Ask twice for people to serve or to give or there wouldn't certainly be any empty seats when it came time for the preaching and teaching of the word. Remember, in, in Luke ten forty two, Mary had chosen the better part. Remember, Jesus had had rebuked the others. Mary was the one that was absolutely consumed with sitting at the feet of Jesus. By the way, that should tell you a lot with respect to what's happening here at this scene. She knew what was going on because she had been paying attention. Think of a church filled with Marys who were so consumed with the reality of what God had done for them that they would realize that if they gave all that they had, it would be nothing more than a drop in the ocean compared to what they have received. Also, I draw your attention to another key observation here. Notice how she, she did this solely for Christ's sake. This was purely for the Lord. There was no agenda here. This wasn't something where she wanted the others to say, Oh, wow, look what she just did. She didn't care anything about that. And ask yourself, how many things do I do exclusively for Christ and for Christ alone? With no thought that I'm looking for any praise from men. I have no desire to be noticed by anyone. And maybe sometimes it causes you to do something like Mary did. To do something, some act of worship that would cause other people to say, my goodness, this person's lost their mind. You know, I love to hear stories of people who, for example, leave their careers to go to a foreign land to serve the Lord. People that just give it all up. And I'm not saying that we all need to do that, obviously. I, I love to hear stories of what you might say fanatics for Christ. I, I, I love to, to think of those who suddenly feel the Spirit of God working in their heart and out of the impulse of their heart and their love for the Lord, they dedicate their life to working with orphans or, or, or prisoners in a prison or AIDS victims or they open up their home for refugees or they, they begin to mentor 
young children that nobody else wants or minister to shut-ins, whatever it might be. I love to hear stories of people that give themselves completely to something special, even within the local church. Or they sell something of, of great value to give to the Lord's work. Because they're so in tune with what God is doing and they love Him so much that nothing else in life matters but serving Him and worshiping Him. Folks, this is the stuff of sacrificial love. I think of William Carey. You remember him? The cobbler, 18th century cobbler. By the way, that's a guy that makes shoes. We don't use that term much these days. He was a cobbler in, in England, and he was a man that was just self-educated. But, you know, he broke the alabaster vial in his life, and his friends thought he was crazy when he set sail for India. And by the power of God, that man over his lifetime led hundreds to Christ. And over a 30-year period, he translated and printed 212,000 Bibles, Testaments, Gospels, books, and tracts in 40 different languages. By the way, it was a sacrifice that cost him dearly in terms of the lives of his family and even his own health. But it was worth it all for Christ. And now he's reaping his reward. He laid up his treasures in heaven. And it's tragic. So often we somehow become content to give a trifle out of our bounty. Rather than having the sacrificial attitude of David in 2 Samuel 24, 24, where he said, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. What a difference. And I challenge you this morning. To give of yourself, not out of duty, not, but rather out of desire from a heart that has been broken over, over sin and thus overflows with, with unrestricted adoration and unending, unending service to the Lord. And be willing to even do that when nobody else knows. Spurgeon poignantly described Mary's act of worship, and he said, and I quote, A sanctified heart, more beautiful than the transparent vase of alabaster, was that hour broken. Only from a broken heart can the sweet spices of grace give forth their rich perfume. Indeed, folks, this was an act of selfless sacrifice. So here again in this passage, the Holy Spirit prepares us for what is about to happen. A preview of the sacred Passover. We've seen a preview of, of a satanic plot that is going to thicken. We, we've seen that contrasted now with the selfless sacrifice. And finally, notice the selfish betrayal. Verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, folks, what a startling contrast to Mary's selfless sacrifice, right? I mean, here is Judas. He, he is really the prototypical religious opportunist. 
the religious opportunist that, that is looking to somehow cash in on Jesus. His religion was false, like so many people. It's all about me. I'm going to do this Christian thing here because in my mind, God exists for me and I want to learn how to manipulate him so that I can get all that should be mine rather than realizing that I exist for him. And so he had this attitude that's so common today. It's all about my needs, my ambitions, my purpose, my success, my rights, my wallet and on and on it goes. You see, Judas wanted to be first in line for some special place of prominence when Jesus set up his kingdom here on earth. And now he's completely fed up. It's like this, this whole deal with uh, the breaking of the alabaster vial and the perfume. It, it was more than he could handle. He, by now, he's totally disillusioned. All of this stuff has been wasted. Here we go again. So he's thinking, I'm just going to try to cash in and get out of this deal. Now, folks, don't think that Judas's attitude was some isolated situation. I, I frankly believe that this is the rule, not the exception in modern Christianity. Greedy, ambitious, selfish, self-absorbed people drawn to Christianity like bees drawn to, to sugar, to honey. How many times I've seen people who kind of struggle financially and they're maybe a bit incompetent and they don't really know what they're going to do with their life. So all of a sudden they want to be a missionary. Get somebody else to pay their way. I've seen this in seminary so many times it breaks my heart. Or men who really desperately want some attention and they see a way of maybe becoming powerful and, and having an audience and so they go to seminary to become a pastor. And then they grab a hold of all of these gurus that tell them how to attract a crowd so that you can fill up a church and make lots of money. I've seen the same thing with artists, people desperate for a stage, desperate for applause, desperate for power, desperate for prestige. I think of American Idol. You see that show that's so popular today? The worship of other people. That same thing is spilled over into the church. And frankly, that's the type of thing that Judas was looking for. By the way, how often do you hear, for example, of a great singer being discovered singing in obscurity in a hospital ward or in a hospice or in some place where nobody would possibly know except the Lord and a few people? That he or she was singing. And the same thing could be applied to any act of ministry. Well, like Judas, many people today have no real love for the Savior. And many people, quite frankly, if they thought for one minute that following Christ might cost them their life, as Judas was beginning to figure out, they would, like Judas, very quickly betray Christ Jesus well, what about you as we close this morning? First of all, I ask you, have, have you placed your faith in the blood of the Lamb? I, I hope so, dear friends. I hope so. I pray so. Now, please hear this. There is another day of judgment that's coming. 
that will cause what happened to those in Egypt to absolutely pale into utter insignificance. Someday you will face the Lamb either as your Savior or as your judge. If you're not covered with His blood, you will one day stand condemned in the presence of His holiness. And once again, He will command the angel of death to unsheathe His sword. But then it will be too late. And there you will stand with the throngs of people who have rejected Christ in unimaginable horror. And you will have the penetrating eyes of divine omniscience peer into your very soul and expose all of your unforgiven wickedness. And then with the swiftness and the power of lightning, you will be eternally severed from the life of God and cast into the abyss prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, dear sinner, I pray that you will repent before it's too late. And for those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, who have with me this day marveled at the sacred Passover the satanic plot, the selfless sacrifice, the selfish betrayal, all previews of far greater and far more dramatic events that would soon unfold. I pray that these eternal truths will stir you to worship and to sacrificial service. For the Lord has given and suffered beyond our imagination. We need to ask ourselves, what are we doing for Him? Those of us who have been sprinkled with the blood. May Christ also be our daily food. For as Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. But he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, I, I pray that your life and my life will reflect the sacrifice of Mary. Yea, the sacrifice of Christ. And may our hearts offer the doxology of Paul when he reflected in Romans 11 on the glorious truths of our justification by faith. When he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that these eternal truths will grip our hearts and that You will not let us loose until we bow before You as we should. I pray especially for those who do not know You as Savior. Lord, may today be the day of their repentance and the day they experience the miracle of the new birth the day that they become sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb who paid the penalty for their sins. And Lord, for those of us that know and love You, may we be stirred to ever greater service and sacrifice that we might love You more deeply and know You more fully. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.
We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.